You are listening to Analyze Asia with Bernard Leung, the podcast dedicated to interview thought leaders and industry players to understand and dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by Ideal Workspace, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. You can visit their website, idealworkspace.com. Hi, Sergey. Hi. How are you doing? Uh, very good, very good. And actually, I'm sitting inside Inset Business School in Sergey's office. I'm talking to Professor Sergey Natasin, who is currently a Timken Chat Professor of Global Technology and Innovation. Tell me a little bit about your role in INSEAD. Uh, sure, Bernard. So I am a professor, one of about 150 professors that we have at INSEAD. And about uh, 65 of us are here in Singapore and the rest are in France and Abu Dhabi. And despite what most people think about professors, Mostly what we do is not teaching. We teach relatively little because what top business schools mostly do, they produce research that is then used by companies and other business schools. So most of my time I spend working with doctoral students and with my colleagues on producing research. And then there are some administrative duties, of course, within INSEAD. I run, for example, our alliance with the Wharton School in the United States. And then there is some teaching. So what have been your research been focusing on in the business school? I mostly try to study novel business models of various companies, and those companies can be startups, but those can be also big multinational corporations. And usually what I try to do, I try to collect data and study companies using real data. And fortunately, we are kind of in in the internet and mobile age, so there is lots of data available. I'll just give one example. A recent very kind of ambitious project that I have is to look at every single startup that has ever been done in the world. This kind of data is now available thanks to websites like uh, TechCrunch, Angel list and others and so we scraped all of this data from those websites and we are trying to figure out what makes a successful startup Wow so you're actually like getting the DNA of a startup and try to figure out what are the successful features and what are not the successful features and maybe even figure out more insights Absolutely, yes. And this is not easy because there is, of course, some data on founders and uh, those who who funded the startup and when it was founded and place, etc. But a lot of things are not really codified in any good way. And so what you have to do is basically go to news wires and parse those news wires and extract some news about startups when they hire someone or they create a new business model or they launch a new product and there are limits to what you can do with machine learning and those sorts of things but that's an interesting project i think part of the role of being in academia because i'm have been part of it in the past long long time ago is not just research but also teaching you teach too, right? Uh, absolutely, yeah. We teach, again, as I, as, I, as I said, much less than people think. I don't know, maybe one-fifth of my time mm. is spent teaching. And I do very little usual kind of a MBA classroom teaching. I teach only one class, entrepreneurship class for MBAs, which is basically all about launching new companies. In my class, students come up with ideas for startups, help each other evaluate those idea- ideas, help each other improve those ideas, and then experiment and get first traction. They try to test those ideas in the market and see if there is any validation that this is a good 
idea. And in fact, also you help some of the alumni insert MBA students after that with their businesses, with ideas as well. I think a full disclosure, my wife was an insert at MBA uh, and she also came to you for help. And I also have to disclose that I'm currently an entrepreneur in residence in INSEAD as well. Right. Yes. So certainly uh, this has been my passion to make some of the INSEAD startups succeed. And I help them in any way I can. So initially, I, of course, teach this class. And then if students continue running with the idea, I help with advice. And sometimes I help formally with investments, angel investments, and some real advice, uh, you know, as a member of uh, advisory board, for example. So this is kind of a more of a normal teaching. But um, most of our teaching at INSEAD is actually not MBA, although our MBA program is probably the best known program. Mostly we teach executives. And for executives, we teach all kind of short courses, non-degree courses, uh, where students either come to our campus. It's even hard to call them students. They're, you know, they're grown-ups. They're much older than our MBA students. <laughs> and for example, I have uh, two very exciting programs that I'm teaching in now. One is a program that I started, which is a program for a Russian bank for 500 people. Every year we teach them in a mixed program, which is combines virtual teaching with face-to-face teaching. And there are a few unique things about that program. First of all, this program had strong virtual component way before Coursera existed or any of those companies Mm. existed. So already at the time, we were already doing something like this. Second, it's a massive program. You know, imagine corporation sends 500 people to get trained and they never come to our campus. Our campus is not big enough for them. So instead, we fly to Moscow and teach those people. And another fascinating program that I teach in uh, right now is a completely virtual program on business model innovation with Microsoft, which uh, will eventually enroll 10,000 people in several waves. So right now we have a wave with about 1,000 students taking my class, which we actually recorded back in January. That's also part of the reason why I'm here to talk to you. It's about book. That's right. That's right. You wrote a book with your co-author, Karen Girotra, correct? Called The Risk-Driven Business Model. Help our audience to understand what is the central thesis of the book itself. Certainly. So uh, this book is kind of a culmination of many years of work. And this book, central premise, if I were to formulate it kind of quickly, is that companies, typically uh, big and small companies, doesn't matter, spend a lot of time on innovation, thinking about innovation. And what we claim in this book is that a lot of this effort is somewhat misdirected. A lot of effort goes into innovating products and technologies, which is usually done through R&D investments. There is a group R&D department in almost any company and multi-billion dollar budgets are allocated to those groups and they're supposed to come up with new products products and technologies. What companies do relatively little or not at all is innovating their business models. And the business model to me is a product or service delivery system. This is kind of a backbone of the company. And you can innovate business models without touching products or technologies. You can keep current products, current technologies. You can go to the same groups of customers that you usually serve. But what you change is the way you deliver products or services. And what we show in the book is that this is a fantastic way to innovate. It doesn't really cost much money, unlike R&D kind of innovation. If you approach this process systematically, it can generate fantastic innovations um, with, with great returns. One of the things I picked up from reading the book was there are some 
important choices that are made by not just entrepreneurs but also executives in designing the business models and i think in the book you highlighted it very well about the point to increase or reduce the characteristics of risk and you kind of highlight two types of risk one is information risk and one is incentive alignment risk maybe you can help the audience to understand what are these risks are and what kind of choices that they need to make in order to mitigate them? Uh, certainly. I would begin by saying that when companies think about business model, typically first thing that comes to mind is profit, how to increase profit, how to maybe increase revenues or reduce costs. And a lot of innovation initiatives boil down to either finding new sources of revenues or cost reduction. And I think this is a very dangerous and, and actually a wrong focus, or, or at least not a complete spectrum of the things that the company can do. The best way to discuss this is to give an example. So let me give you an example of a famous innovation, uh, Dell. So what, what did Dell do? Dell never innovated any products or technologies. Dell used existing processors, existing hard drives, memory chips. They created nothing in terms of technology. They used whatever was out there in the market. What they changed instead is a business model where instead of first trying to predict what consumers will buy, and then producing this product somewhere in Far East at the lowest possible cost, transporting it to the United States and selling it through a chain of retailers, which is what everybody else in the industry was doing, Dell said, no, we're going to do things differently. Instead of forecasting first and then producing, we're going to first sell the product. We're going to go to the customer and say, okay, what kind of product would you like? The customer would prepay it and then, only then, we would assemble a product. And so Dell turned upside down the business model of the industry where you build first and sell later. Now you sell first and then build. What did it mean? Did Dell achieve kind of a low cost? Well, not necessarily because Dell had to produce all of its uh, desktop computers in the United States, for example, to get them quickly to the end consumer. Uh, labor costs in the United States are certainly higher than in Asia. And so from that point of view, Dell was not necessarily a low cost company. But what they did, they eliminated risk. They eliminated this risk that you build something that consumers don't want. Or you build something and technology becomes obsolete while you're getting this computer to the United States from Asia. And as a result, this computer does not have that much value anymore. This is what we call information risk. You eliminate information risk of making a decision of building a computer without proper information about whether the customer wants it or not. And then you struggle with consequences of this decision. Sometimes you have to make a discount. Sometimes you have to just throw a computer away because nobody wants it. What Dell did is not increasing revenues or reducing costs. It actually eliminated risk. And this is a kind of innovation that we talk about in our book. This is an example of creating a new business model which eliminates information risk. Mm. But then how about incentive alignment risk? Right. So incentive alignment risk. So again, we have... Uh, Lots of different examples, but let me give you one. Um, so, for example, there is a very interesting Israeli company called uh, Netafim, which is a market world market leader in drip irrigation. They were not always a world leader. Um, at some point of time, they were struggling to sell the technology to farmers. And the technology was great. They would easily increase crop yields by five or six hundred percent. But the problem was farmers were not really buying the technology because farmers were poor, they were undereducated, they were mostly living in countries that uh, didn't have uh, high incomes. And so 
farmers were very cautious. You know, this, this Israeli company comes with a shiny technology and tries to sell it to me. And how do I know it works? And how do I know how to use it? Once I buy it and then they leave, what if uh, crop yields don't increase, right? So this is a fundamental incentive misalignment. Even if there is a, a technology there that helps farmer increase crop yields, he's still not gonna buy it because he's the one who has to make this big investment into something that to him seems unproven and, and questionable. So what Netafim has done, they've drastically changed the relationship that they have with their customers. Instead of selling products, they went into offering them services. They would come to a farmer and say, look, you pay nothing. Let us take care of you. Let us install our drip irrigation. Let us monitor sun and the acidity of the soil and we will release as much water as necessary for your plants because we are experts, we know how to do that, we know our technology. And at the end of the year, if your crop yields increase, as we promised, then we will split the gains. So the farmer loses nothing. Now all the risk is transferred onto Netafim. But Netafim is really a big company and it knows what it's doing. So it's the best party that can tolerate this kind of risk. Mm. So this is an example of creating a new business model by changing incentives, by, by changing alignment of incentives and transferring a re this kind of risk from one party to another. Have you seen any good, interesting examples in Asia that have successfully mitigated risks of such, whether it's information or incentive alignment type risks? Most certainly. And in fact, I would say that some of the greatest innovators in Asia they are business model innovations, not uh, the companies that innovate uh, products or technologies. It's still very, very hard, for example, to name a company, say, in China, that has been highly successful with offering uh, you know, new fantastic products or technologies that the entire world adopted. But if you look at companies like Xiaomi, which is a fantastic example of a company that grew from nothing to $12 billion in sales in only five years, this is much faster than Apple. So how can it compete with companies like Apple and others that produce uh, mobile phones? Well, actually, Xiaomi doesn't innovate by creating fantastic new products. Instead, they created a completely different business model of selling mobile phones. They go directly to the consumer and they try to get feedback from the consumer very quickly on what kind of features does the consumer want what kind of things does a consumer want to see in a, in a mobile phone? They allow consumers to configure the operating system and they even allow consumers to add features to the operating system, like translate it, for example, to other languages. As a result, what you see is a very interesting business model, which is completely unlike Apple. Apple takes design of new phones and does it in a complete secrecy. Nobody knows when the new iPhone is going to come out. Nobody knows what its features are going to be. And then Apple places a huge order into a supplier in complete secrecy supplier produces and then populates all the channels, right? Nobody in the emerging markets can replicate that because companies just don't have this kind of money. They don't have this kind of expertise. So instead what Xiaomi does, they produce in small quantities 
they listen carefully to the customer and they're very attuned to the market. So if something goes wrong, wrong with the phone, they can quickly improve it and produce again. So they created a new business model, which eliminates this risk that creates something that people really don't want, which, which did happen with uh, iPhones at certain point of time. They had all kinds of issues, which had to be fixed later on. I think Apple was somewhat lucky so far that nothing has gone completely wrong. An entire batch of say, I don't know, 50 million iPhones had to be removed from the market. So that's one example. And of course, there are other examples like Alibaba. And Alibaba is a famous example of business model innovation, which doesn't really, they don't really innovate products or technologies. They didn't really create any new technologies per se. But what they did, they enabled transactions among consumers by aligning incentives and adding things like Alipay and bringing Western companies to the Chinese market so that they can transact with Chinese manufacturers. They introduced a rating system which allows to keep track of quality of those manufacturers and so on and so forth. So that's again an example of business model innovation. Mm, that's interesting. There are two big companies. Then I think in the book, you also talk about the four questions that will define your company. In fact, mm -hmm. the book's website is called defineyourcompany.com. So what are the four important questions that helps to define that? Uh, so we, in the book, we created uh, this kind of a framework for coming up with new business models. And this was our goal when we wrote the book. We wanted to have a step-by-step -step guidance. You do first this, second this, third that, and you create a new business model. So that was kind of our goal. And the big part uh, of this process is generating ideas for new business models. Uh, in generating those ideas for new business models, what we said is a company should ask four questions. What kinds of key decisions that the company makes, which may create certain risks? when those decisions are made, who makes those decisions, and why those decisions are made. And by changing those four levers, what you can do, you can drastically change risks that your company faces. And these decisions can change alignment, incentive alignment risk, and they can change information risk. I like to talk about like when, because that's one of the interesting part of your book that I've actually read, is that in a lot of major corporations, you always have the business model that works, the product that works, and then they start spending money in R&D, and they created a product that disrupts not just the product innovation side, but also the business model. There will always be these two teams, the SWOT team, and then there is the business unit owner, and that goes into conflict. And in every fight, the business unit owner wins because he owns most of the PL. The when timing for a CEO is very difficult. How do those kind of decisions you see can actually mitigate the kind of risk. I mean, Kodak has a very good example of inventing all this, you know, digital camera, and they, they still let it killed by the innovation itself. Uh, this is very true. And I think the hardest thing about business model innovation is probably getting it implemented within the companies because big companies often fall victim to their current business model, which is already generating money. And so it's very hard to give it up and do something differently. Right? The recommendations that we give in a book, we basically recommend doing this kind of a business model innovation, maybe in a secret way, I would say. Instead of trying to change the entire company, what you want to try to do is to create a small team which has an independent budget which is not subject to any 
KPIs of the rest of the company, which does not try to change the culture of the entire company, but instead it tries to experiment on a small scale and prove that the business model innovation works. Once uh, this unit proves that the business model innovation works on a small scale, you can decide what to do. You can spin it off and run it as a separate company. There is nothing wrong with that. Or using data that the company, that the small unit creates, you can go back to the owner of PL and you can say, look, here is an actual proof that this works. And we've had some examples in the book uh, describing something like that. So, for example, Blockbuster is a now bankrupt company, a video rental company in the United States. It used to be market leader. And believe it or not, at some point of time, they did a great innovation. They came up with revenue sharing contracts, which gave studios revenue share of the tapes that Blockbuster was renting. This resulted in drastic profit increase for the entire industry. But before they were able to do that, no studio would agree to this new relationship because they said, look, we already have the current contract. We're already making money. Why would we do that? You know, all the Sonys and Disney's, etc. And so they had to experiment. So they, they put together a small team. They allocated one city, Pittsburgh, and they said, we're going to pretend that we already have this kind of a new business model in this one city. They tried it out, showed improvements in revenues, and then took those numbers to studios and convince them that, look, this really does work. So that kind of approach sometimes works and sometimes just spinning off the company completely can work as well. Have you seen the spinning off company model works better? Well, uh, so what you see, what I can tell you, what I see is that uh, some of the biggest venture capital firms now are kind of a company owned venture capital firms. So if you look in the United States, Google Ventures is one of the biggest ones, right? You can think about it as kind of a running this innovation parallel because, you know, if something interesting happens within Google, somebody wants to start their own company, Google Ventures can invest into this. And if you look in Singapore, even Singtel is one of the most active venture capital funds, right? So mm -hmm. Singtel owns the venture capital fund. And the same idea, you can fund innovations from within the company, but you can also fund startups, which are just startups, general startups, which are not founded by people from within the company. Interesting. There's another company I could think of is SoftBank. Yes. They have funded a lot of very interesting companies like Alibaba and now Tokopedia in Indonesia. And they also have funded a lot of these uh, taxi hailing apps Yes. In, yes. The, in the market itself. But how about the who strategy? How do you be able to make changes in the business model to actually help empower that decision maker? That's another part of the framework. Who changing who makes decisions in a business model is a very, very powerful approach. One very simple example would be Google's rule where they uh, allow their employees to spend 20% of their time doing whatever they think is best. And this is a bizarre rule that created a lot of questions around the world. And the thinking behind this rule is that employees of Google are the ones who know best what to work on. They know what is a, what are the most interesting technologies, they know best what are the most vexing questions, and it turns out that more than 50% of innovations at Google came from this 20% of time that employees are left on their own and nobody can tell them what to do. So this is an example where you change the decision instead of telling your employees, you know, I'm the supervisor, I tell you what to do, you turn it around and you say, look, you are a smart person. You know what is the best uh, thing that you can do in the interest of the company. Why don't you do that? I want to contrast that with another company, Amazon. Uh huh. 
some people say is like the big incubator for startups. I mean, if you look at the revenues that brought about by Amazon Web Services, I think it's in the billion range and now it's being reported as a separate item. And in some case, even overshadows its current parent company. Yes. So in that case, it's very driven by the CEO and by looking at it. So how does it differ by just giving sometimes your employees the free time? I think it started out from employee free time. And then after that, there needs to be a decision that being made to invest in this business itself. Most certainly. So you should have a process within a big company of how this kind of ideas generated by employees get eventual traction within the company. And uh, the best way to do it is to allocate just some small seed money for employees to experiment with things. It doesn't have to be a lot of money. Typically, you can prototype and experiment with a simple business model by spending only, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars that it's not a very expensive proposition. And then you have to create some kind of a environment where those kinds of ideas that get tested, they are elevated for further evaluation, right? And ideally what you want, you want to run this kind of a evaluation, kind of a tournament of sorts, I would say, constantly. And at the end of the year, there should be winners like what we do at INSEAD with venture competition. Anyone who has a startup idea can apply to venture competition and then there's going to be competition and at the end of the day, uh, three top startups are going to win some funding, right? And and after that, you can look at the winners of the winners and decide if you want to help them and create a bigger initiative. Coming to the why, I think the why strategy is probably one of the interesting chapters I've read. How does the companies are able to kind of resolve those incentive misalignments by changing business models and how do they synchronize the the kind of time horizons that's imposed by the different parties in their respective business models. I think this is something that the best solution is to pursue kind of a strategy of vertical integration. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's uh, so it's one of the strategies. Sometimes vertical integration is the only thing that can really help you. I think good example uh, is the one that we use in, in the book, in uh, which comes from the healthcare industry in the United States, where you know incentives are such that doctors are paid based on the number of procedures that they perform. And surprise, surprise, they try to perform many more procedures than you really need. As a result, the U.S. economy spends 16% of GDP on healthcare, which is ridiculously high, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so some companies, what they started doing, they started integrating doctors. They started just hiring doctors and paying them for keeping employees healthy rather than for paying doctors when people get sick, right? Which is fundamentally a bad incentive, you know? The more you get sick, the more I get paid, right? So so that's just not not a good business. But to give um, an example, which is maybe closer to everyone, Uber is a fantastic example, which is a business model innovation, which tries to fix this, you know, why incentive. Uber introduced the surge pricing, right? So depending on demand, price for a taxi can go up or down. And so what this means is on Christmas Eve, you might actually pay 100 times more for a taxi, but there's always going to be a taxi, right? Because the rate goes up so high, there's going to be someone who will say, okay, forget the Christmas uh, dinner, I'll go on the street and I'm going to drive instead. So this fundamental alignment of incentives, when there is higher demand, there is higher supply. 
mm. which is something that uh, usual taxi companies cannot achieve. You know, it's very hard to get a taxi when, when it rains in Singapore because, you know, supply of taxis is the same, but now everybody wants a car, right? But Uber tries to fix this issue by changing why, why people go to work. It's not because of the fixed rate, it's because the rate changes depending on how much demand is out there. But they also suffer information risk in a way from the point of regulatory mm-hmm. and also particular with uh, backlash because of the demand supply model. Like recently there was the Sydney attack and then they searched because of the demand of taxis went high and then everybody kind of accused them of being extreme cap- capitalists. But it is not because of that. I think it's more because of a demand and supply problem mm-hmm. in it. So. For in that situation, how would Uber deal with that? Do they still have to mitigate those risks in order not to kill their own business model? I, I think there's some sign of strategic dilemma in that case. Most definitely, most definitely. And I think people are still not entirely used to this kind of a dynamic pricing in many other industries. So for example, somehow we are okay with paying 10 times more for the same seat on the airplane at certain times, and nobody attacks airlines or complains about that, right? Somehow everybody understands that supply is limited and when demand goes up, so should prices, right? But for some reason, we don't tolerate this in Uber. So I think it's a lot of it is just educating your consumers and explaining why this happens and explaining that uh, it's not like Uber makes some kind of a fantastic abnormal profits from that. You know, everybody kind of understands that airlines are mostly in trouble and most airlines don't make money. Uh, and so nobody accuses them. But somehow people suspect that Uber uh, Uber makes billions of dollars because of this surge pricing, which... I don't think is is true. There were other famous cases similar to Uber where, you know, companies tried to exercise dynamic pricing and failed. Like Coca-Cola tried to increase prices on Coke in Coke machines when it was hot. And there was a big backlash of, of people who said, oh, come on, this is inhumane, right? But then everyone is again okay with airlines. So I don't think we quite understand why people think that way. Maybe the psychology of getting the customer is also very different. It's like in logistics industry, everybody thinks logistics should be free. So it's kind of an interesting <laughs> Right. So I think we go into psychology, you are right. So no, nobody knows. We need, we need to do more. We need to experiment more. Yeah. Are there any other sort of interesting key points that you also want the readers to learn from your book? Of course, I want readers to buy the book first and then they'll learn these points. One thing I want to mention is that this book is 50% of it is for entrepreneurs who are starting new businesses and they're not really currently in any business model. But then half of the book is really written for a major kind of a big companies for intrapreneurs if you will that are trying to change business model of their large organization so this was a tricky balance because innovation happens both in big companies and in small companies and we kind of tried to strike this balance so you would find uh, a lot of examples of startups in the book and then you would find a lot of examples of uh, multinational corporations. So I don't want your listeners to think that this book is just for startups or just for big companies. It's actually both. I'm going to switch the gears from entrepreneurs to entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that is probably very little talked about is the INSEAD alumni. And I think in Southeast Asia, particularly, you have very successful entrepreneurs who have done very well. I would give uh, Property Guru as an example. A lot of the professors like yourself and uh, the late uh, Professor Patrick Turner, who I know very well, have invested in founders. 
What do you typically look for in these founders? Uh, we are certainly very fortunate that uh, students that come through INSEAD, they are extremely bright and they, they are already kind of pre-selected. We have uh, tough admission requirements and, and they are in general very special students. I'm talking about MBA yeah. students who are mostly start uh, companies. They speak many languages. We have this requirement that you need to speak two languages other than your native language uh, in the MBA program. And they usually have several nationalities. They don't mind traveling or going anywhere in the world. So all of that makes them perfect as uh, startup founders. So so it's, uh, it's good students. It's of course our program, which is very extensive in entrepreneurship curriculum. We have all kinds of courses, every single topic starting from, you know, idea generation and basics of where to get an idea for a startup and going all the way into growth mode and seeking funding and so on and collecting team and so on. So students are extremely good. Uh, they are very dedicated. And in particular, when they graduate and when they decide to start a company, this to me is a fantastic signal because I know they can easily get a six-figure salary and go into McKinsey or you know one of the other big companies. So, so that shows you immediately how much of their skin they put into the game. So I certainly, uh, I certainly look at uh, their business model, and this is something I know about. And I certainly uh, look at, uh, at, at the people, because initially, at early stages, you definitely invest mostly into people. Mm. What have the companies you have invested in? I know Redmart, very well known in Southeast Asia. Yes, so I uh, I've invested into uh, uh, quite a few startups. Uh, some of them are in uh, in Silicon Valley. Some of them are in Boston and New York. So if I were to focus just on um, Singapore startups, uh, yeah, Redmart was probably my first investment in uh, Singapore. I invested in Tab Square, which is a restaurant, iPad-based kind of a menu ordering and. You can order on your application, iPhone application, when you wait in line, for example. Mm. I invested in Lookbooker, which is a platform for uh, reserving uh, hair and kind of uh, nail salons. I invested in Sanderman, uh, which is a company which provides uh, assessment of employees in, in any corporation and identifies gaps between what you want your employees to be and what they are right now. I invested into Edit Suits, which is a custom short, uh, custom pants, custom suit startup company. I can keep going. Yes, I know. happen to know the founder of Edit Suits, uh, Rattle, who was also from the same class with Tavet for TransferWise, which is now a unicorn, and yes. also the founders of Redma. Yes. And they are also investors of the company. Absolutely, yes. So absolutely. you're forming your own kind of INSEAD mafia in that way. Uh, absolutely, yeah. INSEAD mafia is very strong in Singapore and, and highly committed to Singapore. Um, if you look also at venture funds, there are a lot of INSEAD alumni who run various venture funds. And nowadays, what I also see, a lot of INSEAD alumni who've been highly successful entrepreneurs in other countries, once they have a successful exit, uh, they often come to Singapore to invest money into startups here and to advise startups here because economic environment and support of the government and immigration policies, everything is uh, is highly stimulating. Hmm. And then they can actually extend to the region as well. Help our audience where do they find you? 
uh, well, they find me at INSEAD, so professors are uh, kind of public figures, so if you Google me, you'll easily find me, and, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, you can find our website, defineyourcompany.com, and you can go from there, so very, very easy. Wow, okay. You can also find me at bleongcw or bernardleong.com or you can subscribe to our podcast or with our Twitter account at AnalyzeAsia or AnalyzeAsia.com. Our podcast can be found in iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. And please leave your reviews. It will be great even if it's one star or five star. Your comments are totally welcome. Anyway, Sergey, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Bernard. It was my pleasure.